Blog Talk Radio. week on the Block Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks, and this episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media, monitoring informing, and informing pathways to the sustainable healthcare economy. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show, and joining me in the virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hey, Greg. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great. As you know, we've had a couple challenges in the last 24 hours, but all good here today. So for those of you not familiar with my colleague, he is a veteran healthcare executive and president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville-based Florida consulting firm, and the immediate past chair and current board member of the Population Health Alliance, also known as PHA. Fred's experience spans hospital and health system administration, HMO general management, and is the founder of a disease management company. My background includes thought leadership and consulting support for hospitals, health systems, capitated medical groups, IPAs, PHOs, and MSOs. I publish and principally author ACLWatch.com, founded Health Innovation Media, and I'm known on Twitter principally as Two Health Guru. Today, we continue coverage of issues in the emerging population health space including evidence-based best practices with key thought leaders, innovators, academicians, and best-in-class vendors. Our special guest is Michael Dermer, a thought leader, speaker, entrepreneur, and innovator in the reward space, and the founder of Incent One, now an operating unit of WellTalk. He's a top Twitter influencer and a Huffington Post blogger who currently serves as Chief Incentive Officer and Senior Vice President at WellTalk, a company committed to, quote, transforming the nation's healthcare system from one of sick care to optimized health, end quote. Michael is also frequently, uh, the, um, Michael has also frequented the white waters of the M&A space, but we'll leave that one up to him. So with that abbreviated introduction, Fred, help us get to know this pioneer in the rewards and the incentives domain, or perhaps otherwise legitimately tagged behavioral economics. Thank you so much, Greg. And Michael, welcome to the show this week. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to get you on again. Um, obviously, this whole area of incentives and motivation and engagement and behavior change is one of the key focuses of population health. So perhaps give us just an intro to incentives, sort of where they came from and maybe a little bit of where they may be going. Um, you know, it's really interesting because if you go back to the mid-2000s um, when, you know, our company, Incent One, was founded, incentives used to be, you know, here's a, a free gym membership um, offered by a health plan and employer. Uh, and now it's being um, used in virtually every circle of healthcare, um, whether it be employers, uh, health plans, even Medicare and Medicaid. You know, for many, many years in Medicare, um, incentives were very, very, very limited. And now, uh, last year, new Medicare regulations were passed to open up 
the opportunity to use rewards and incentives. Same thing is true in Medicaid, where states are being very aggressive with the use of rewards and incentives. Um, just to give you a couple of statistics, you know, uh, the National Business Group on Health and Fidelity Benefits puts out a study every year. And for large employers, they were spending just shy of $900 per employee uh, on incentives. So I think that, that the healthcare community, while many years ago resisted and said, you know, why would we reward the people that were behaving the worst? Um, I think they've come to realize, like many other industries that try to touch consumers, that um, rewards and incentives are a critical part of driving behavior. Um, and, and, you know, Fred, that doesn't just apply to the, to the consumer population. You know, if you think about, um, you know, CMS's announcement of just the large percentage of payments in the provider space that are going to be tied to value and the transition from, you know, fee from fee for service, um, incentives and rewards have become absolutely critical in the provider space. So, um, really, you see them being used everywhere in healthcare, and it comes down, I think, to a basic concept, which is if it all comes down to consumer and provider behavior and you believe in incentives and rewards or some critical part of that, then I'll, uh, I think you'll see that they'll be continue to use not only in larger ways but smarter ways throughout the healthcare community. Yeah, Michael, it's, it's interesting that you just brought in that whole sort of value-based payment model and the change of payment model as another form of incentive. Getting back to to the consumer, and then we can go into the provider a bit. You know, there's been a lot of arguments about this. Oh, incentives only work first time, or why so big, or why do we need them? What is the the truth in that area? Is there a truth there? It's all how you design them, Fred. So l let me give you some examples. You know, for example, if you gave somebody $50 to complete a health risk assessment or to get a biometric screening, you'll get a good amount of take-up. If you give people the same $50 for reducing their BMI by 10%, right, where they have to change their lifestyle and have continuous effort, you won't get any take-up at all. And so it's all about how you align the appropriate, you know, dollar value of incentive to the appropriate behavior. You know, um, we kind of have a methodology where we, we kind of call it the theory of relativity in a lot of ways where um, the way you optimize that, right, is you align – the dollar value is based on things like the level of effort you're asking somebody to take, you know, their income level and a bunch of other things that, that serve to optimize that. Um, secondly is, you know, extrinsic rewards, you know, financial rewards don't act alone, right? They act hand in hand with, with two other things. One is, you know, other engagement tools, right? So things like social and mobile and gaming and team challenges and communications platform, you know, all serve to enhance the value, you know, of incentive programs. Uh, a, a really well-designed incentive program that's poorly communicated, you know, doesn't work particularly well. Um, and then finally, you know, these intrinsic motivators, if you optimize the amount you give away and you optimize the use of these other engagement tools, they really do hopefully serve to, to partner and energize more intrinsic motivators, Right, so you'll hear stories that you know an individual will get an incentive or will take a behavior rather just for getting the incentive, but then once they interact with uh, the system, if you will, they get a diagnosis they otherwise would not have gotten. They learn more about a condition. You know, they get exposed to a support group. Um, I was recently reminded of a story where a woman 
who wasn't really following her prenatal care very well, got an incentive to go to a prenatal care class, and then was around all of her fellow, fellow pregnant moms. And she said it was much more the support group that kept her going. Um, so I think that, that all those things have to work together. And I think the certainly the longer-term behavior change right, is harder to, to crack with incentives. Um, but I think that hopefully they can serve to kind of unlock and create these epiphanies around more intrinsic motivators. And the good news is that there are lots and lots of behaviors that we know work with incentives. You know, it's not just health management, right? It's not just go get a biometric screening or, or um, take a health risk assessment, but even things, you know, that save money today, let it, I'm going to get, uh, you know, a lower cost MRI when I'm looking for, a, for an MRI. So um, I think the answer is the longer term behavior change stuff is hard, but there's lots and lots of low hanging fruit, especially if you combine the different, you know, techniques that I was mentioning. And you've mentioned a couple times dollar values of incentives. Do incentives have to be cash or dollar-related? Um, if you look outside of the healthcare industry, if you look at all the data from, for example, the largest volumes of loyalty programs, like the, you know, think of the bank and credit card loyalty programs, almost inevitably when you give consumers the ability to pick the type of incentive they want, basically 90% of it is cash or cash equivalents. You'll see, you know, 45% cash and 45%, you know, things like gift cards and debit cards, which are essentially cash equivalents. So, you know, people get rewards and incentives. They have them throughout their non-healthcare lives. Um, and while there are other things that, you know, can work at times, I think, you know, cash and cash equivalents are really king. Um, so it's not so much um, not using cash. It's more about how do you optimize the way you design them so you get the most bang for your buck. So individuals will have a different preference as to what they would like that cash equivalent to be potentially. Yeah, and, and you know, back years ago, people used to say, well, we only want to give people incentives, and the only thing they can get is our healthy items, right? And if you think about that, um, you know, if an individual took a healthy behavior and they wanted to go buy books, right, or if they wanted to go buy something for their family, right, or if they wanted to go on a vacation, you know, that's what motivates them. So if they got their cash or cash equivalent and used it for some of the items that I mentioned, um, and it was really limiting to m make sure, you know, to use the incentive purely for things that were quote-unquote healthy. Um, so I think a lot of it goes to the broader concept, Fred, that, you know, consumerism in healthcare and the way we view the consumer is going to start to mimic the way these other industries think about consumers, you know, and giving consumer the the choice to, to take behaviors and, and kind of take advantage of the rewards that they prefer. Right. I know in my personal case, you know, when I was participating in a, in a company's uh, wellness program, you know, and it had that $100 or whatever that you would get, and the, the thing I enjoyed most was it was linked to a gift card system, and I could get a card from an outdoor store that I was very interested in and use that, you know, as my um, – as my reward, so that was my motivator because I knew I'd pick up something from a company that I was interested in buying products from. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing, is it's ultimately about the consumer and what gets them motivated, right? And sometimes I think we don't realize that rewards and incentives, in fact, healthcare is probably the industry, the only industry that asks consumers to change their behavior that doesn't use rewards and incentives, right? We, I mean, we ever get on an airline that didn't have a reward program. So I think we have to realize that it's ultimately about the consumer and while we're asking them to take, you know, healthy behavior, it is exactly as you just described it, Fred. You have your preferences. You have things that you like that make you do things. 
And then ultimately, if that gets you to, to change your behavior in a healthy way, um, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. So employers have been using these for a long time with their wellness programs, and uh, you know there were there have always been issues about it, how much is too much, et cetera. But let's shift a little bit. You know, we now have these ACOs, we have provider groups, we have new people getting in and taking risk in healthcare, and they're all talking about engagement. How does is there anything you would say to say a provider group? Obviously, as you, we talked about earlier, they're they're working now on building their infrastructure, but they're still talking engagement. We got to engage our patients, isn't that? How would you tell a provider group potentially to look at this and what might they want to be doing? So there's two elements of, of how this impacts providers. You know, number one is some of their behaviors, right? So probably a successful example of that is, you know, the e-prescribing and EMR adoption incentives that got providers to kind of get onto those systems. I mean, if you ask, if you look at the surveys from providers, 70% said if it wasn't incentive to to do it, we wouldn't have done it, even though everybody kind of understands you need to have EMRs and it's, it's the wave of the future. So I think that when it comes to driving provider behavior, um, I think also you've looked at recent changes where there's going to be reimbursement for dealing with folks with chronic conditions, right? And they'll get reimbursed a different amount for that. So that's obviously underlying a lot of the fee-for-value uh, transition that we're going through. So those have to be smart, they have to be immediate, right? They can't be these kind of quarterly, old-school pay-for-performance programs where providers don't have a clear understanding of, of what they're going to get and when they're going to get it. Um, but the other part, uh, Fred, that you're, you're talking about relative to the ACOs is, you know, imagine the day when a provider is accountable for the individual's outcome and that individual walks out of their office. Um, I don't think we're too far away from the day where someone's going to check out of the hospital after hip surgery or walks out of a doctor's office after, you know, being di diagnosed with high cholesterol or high blood pressure and is automatically enrolled in an incentive program um, because the economics just line up. I think to start, um, it might be simple little things like uh, a reward program where provider organizations reward people just for go doing their follow-ups, right? Especially, you know, the, the, biggest example where you're starting to see some traction on that is on, on readmissions. You know, you already have the readmission penalties that have been in place for a couple of years, but imagine if when you checked out of the hospital after surgery, you said you can earn $200 if you go to your follow-up follow visit and take your meds and, and go to physical therapy. So right now, I think that's pretty ad hoc, but at some point, I think will be, it will sit side by side with the payment reform, you know, for providers in the same way that um, incentives for consumers sit side by side with the plan design changes that occurred as consumerism started to grow. So I think it's a it's a conceptual leap for providers, but I think they all understand and are putting in place tools now to how do we engage folks when they're when they're no longer in the hospital or no longer in the office. Right. And that's typically, you know, the, the physician can do everything right in their practice and then the individual goes out into their community or into their home and that's where they struggle or run into situations where they don't follow through with it. So being able to reach out in a sense and impact that person and get them to understand, okay, what well, I need to keep doing this, I need to fill that script. I know I think recently that I think it was Walgreens went ahead and is launching as part of their rewards program if you enter in your, uh, I think, your blood glucose levels on a daily basis. Is that yep. sort of what you're talking about? Well, what's interesting about that, I mean, certainly the concept is the same, um, but what what they're what Walgreens has obviously done is is do it in a mechanism that consumers are used to integrate you know used to working through 
and I think there's lots of legs to that. So they're used to interacting with Walgreens. Now they're certainly used to interacting with Walgreens as a result of their, you know, balance reward program. So if an individual, there's going to, we're going to not too off, far off from the day where an individual health system, you know, is going to have a broad-based rewards program that they're, they're enrolled in, and it would tie to not just their general preventative behavior, but also the specific conditions or treatments that they've had. What, what Walgreens has done and some others are trying to do is create a more kind of universal program that deals with your health as a whole. Um, it'd be interesting to find out if there's going to be any correlation to that, to, you know, how it might relate to, you know, how somebody performs in an ACO. Um, but ultimately, if the ACO is accountable for that person's outcome, they're going to also have the need to have a direct mechanism, um, you know, to reward them to try to drive their behavior, in addition to the other, you know, patient engagement tools that are that are being rolled out by, by ACOs. Are there any, um, as an attorney, et cetera, are there any legal impediments to doing these various rewards programs? What's been great over the course of the last decade um, is that there, you know, for a long time, especially back in the days when we started in Cent One, um, there were lots and lots and lots of, you know, ethical, moral, legal, you know, hurdles and challenges. Today, everybody's trying to really clear the decks. I mean, um, I mentioned the Medicare regs. That was a huge deal. I mean, for I don't know how many years it was, for many, many decades, incentives and rewards were just taboo, you know, in that space. And so, and in the regulations, if you read them, you know, um, CMS came out and said, we want people to experiment. We want people to try different things. So I think there's a lot less um, legal hurdles that exist um, than existed before. Um, That being said, there's probably two main areas um, that there's still lots of legal hurdles. Um, one is in the area of pharma and medication adherence. Um, I think across the board, everybody agrees that if people took their medications more, that would solve significant problems. Um, and, you know, in the pharmaceutical space, there still has not been a lot of take-up because of, you know, a lot of the anti-kickback and, and other regulations that existed there. In fact, you know, we've been pretty strong about calling for having those revised um, and giving pharma the opportunity to to do them and to put the proper parameters in place. And then the other is um, folks may be familiar with some of the re- recent EEOC actions where the EEOC has come down um, under the American with Disabilities Act um, and also the Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act, and sued a couple of companies um, over their incentive programs that they weren't in compliance with those laws for a bunch of reasons. Um, there are regulations being worked through um, Congress right now um, and the EEOC right now to try to try to resolve that. Um, but that also still is debating things like, can we give away 30% or 50% of premium? You're still talking about, Fred, you know, 30% of premium, right? You're still talking about multiple thousands of dollars per year per person. Um, So even regardless of how that shakes out, I think it's clear across the board that the legal hurdles are being broken down every day and we'll continue to see, you know, more and more use of incentives. So do we get to the day, as you talked about, it's now moving out into Medicare and Medicaid. Obviously, employers have been using premium differentials and other models built off uh, incentives for individuals to improve their health or work to improve their health. As that moves into Medicare or or Medicaid, is that really something that is going to 
I mean, today, could, do you know if an ACO could do that, or would it require a risk-bearing entity, say, like a health plan or something? Um, right now, for example, on, are you talking about Fred on the on the Medicare side or more on the commercial yeah, side? Yeah, the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Yeah, it's a little different than it, it probably should just be complementary to the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So the regulations basically for Medicare um, were pretty extensive. You know, in the past, you were limited to $50 per year, um, and you were also very limited in terms of the types and numbers of behaviors that you could reward for. So $50 a year, you know, is, is, is really tough to do anything, and that's the existed regulations for many years. The new regulations... Uh, have been opened up to do a couple of things. One is they've removed any dollar cap on it. Um, the only restriction is the amount you give away has to be kind of reasonable relative to the service you're asking somebody to take. So, for example, if you were to get a biometric screening that would normally cost you know $150, um, I don't think you can give people $100 for doing that. You might be able to give them $25 or $50. So um, that's obviously a huge change in the amount of money that you can give away. There's also, um, as I mentioned before, great encouragement to try all kinds of different behaviors. Um, and there used to be great limits in terms of what people could actually do. And now I wouldn't say it's completely wide open, but before it was limited to, you know, some of these zero, um, zero copay preventative services, and now it's pretty wide open in terms of, of behavior. So, you know, those two things alone will, will cause a lot of experimentation um, for kind of Medicare Advantage plans to go about it. And at some point, you know, Fred, to your point about, uh, you know, Medicare share savings, you know, I had mentioned before the e-prescribing programs as well as the, you know, readmission and penalty programs. These are all different types of incentive programs. And at some point, there's got to be a kind of a universal approach that allows this stuff to come together because at the end of the day, we're just trying to get docs and patients to do stuff. Um, and there's a huge amount of programs out right there right now, and I think they're going to start to work, you know, in a complementary fashion that, you know, providers will be rewarded as part of these programs. There'll be more and more kind of pay-for-performance programs. You know, um, Anthem has a pretty um, broad primary care incentive program um, for primary care physicians. So, Right now, there's lots of it going on, and I think there will be more movement in in the Medicare space as well as the commercial space, and probably also some more you know some more consistency down the line. So great. So it'll move more out from right now. We've got a fair sort of uh, value-based model of incentive payments. The doctors trying to shift their behavior. Hopefully, you said it's got to get out to the patient. How do we ensure? And I know this is one of the EEOC issues that these kinds of programs are not discriminatory against an individual based on their health. You know, what's really interesting about the lot of, a lot of the regs is that they say they say two things, right? One is um, we want you to be able to target individual conditions like diabetes, but we also don't want you to discriminate against anybody, right? So how do those two things go hand in hand? If we're going to give people incentives for diabetes, what about people who are pre-diabetic or not diabetic? Or so I think that the you know the health plans, especially of the world, are trying to to, to wrestle with this. I think at the employer level, it's it's easier because I think the employer can just say everybody can earn seven hundred fifty dollars a year, but I've got men, I've got women, I've got people with different conditions and different risk factors. Uh, I'm just going to say everybody can earn 750. You can just earn them for different things, and so I think that that helps. Um, I think when it comes to the health plans and others, 
I think that they've got to be a little bit more clear about, you know, how are you giving people incentives that have certain conditions and, you know, how does it make it available to others that don't? I mean, you don't want to force, for example, Medicare to say, if we want people with diabetes to get an incentive, that we have to give it to all 60-plus million people of, of Medicare. Um, so I think there'll be more regs, uh, more regs down the line. I think the, the phrase that we like to think about is instead of discriminating against people, you kind of discriminate in favor of them, right? Meaning if you have a condition, you can take advantage of an incentive, but that somebody would have an alternative um, for something else, right, to earn the incentive. And I think secondly is some of the reasonable, quote-unquote, reasonable alternative regs that exist out there are really designed to say, hey, listen, if we're asking you to take a behavior that doesn't make sense for you, um, we're going to give you not only an alternative, but in some cases we're actually just going to let you go to your physician and let your physician recommend something to you. So I think that there's some, some guardrails that are being put in place so that somebody for a bunch of different reasons that might not, it might not be appropriate to take a behavior will still have the opportunity to earn incentives a different way. Got it. And, um, is you talked earlier about you know sort of this proportionality of what the Medicare regs to discuss is yep. there how is that is that so loose that it's kind of i'll see I'll know one when I see one or is it a little how would that be defined you know it's interesting because I think a lot of people expected Medicare to essentially raise the limit from fifty dollars to some set number. I mean, that's what you're seeing in a lot of states on Medicaid, where they had a set number of 100 bucks, and now they're saying, okay, it's going to be 300 and then have at it. Um, but I think, you know, Medicare, CMS, to their credit, really wanted people to experiment. So they said, listen, we may set a dollar value down the road now, but right now all we're going to say is the dollar value you, have to, you give away has to be kind of reasonable relative to what you're asking. So I think it is, Fred, I mean, it is going to be, you kind of know it when you see it. I would probably suggest, you know, use my example of, let's say you had a $100 service you're asking somebody to take. Um, you know, do I think I'd go to 50% of that as an incentive? My gut tells me that's a little high. 25%, you know, probably. Um, so I think that eventually that, that CMS will come out with some more more specific guidelines, uh, you know, around that. But, you know, if you wanted to use another framework, I mean, think about the ACA, right? The ACA... Uh, and and the HIPAA rules basically said it's it's 30 and in some case 50% of premium. So that's you know $3,000 a year, let's say, right? $5,000 a year. So um, that's obviously far far more than what people are doing in Medicare right now. Now that they're just getting started on using them. So, um, but eventually I think we're going to get some specific dollar values from from CMS. And let me just throw one monkey wrench in there. I could see that the value of a flu shot. To a health plan and getting a lot of people to do it could con- could conceivably obviously much higher than whatever it costs twelve fifty or twenty five bucks for a flu vaccine you know and and so giving somebody a hundred bucks to do that might actually be in the plan's best interest yep would that hold weight yeah right now it wouldn't um and but i because right now it's not what's in the plan's best interest that's guiding it right it's about influencing behavior i mean the language that cms uses in the regs is essentially that we want them to give enough money that's meaningful to influence behavior but not too much so i think that um you know giving away as you described you know a, a higher of dollar amount for a service that doesn't cost nearly as much i don't know if the dollar value of the service you know the cost of the service is really the right parameter 
right? Um, there could be things, you know, think about biometric screenings, right? They're, they're so foundational, right? But you could go in and get a, you know, a general blood panel for 38 bucks, right? But don't we want still people to take that? Um, another example of that is, is telehealth, right? Don't we want to be steering people, you know, when appropriate to, to using telehealth and staying out of the, you know, ER or burdening other physician networks? So I think that it's a good place to start. Um, one of the things that everybody has to realize is there's there's no constitution on rewards and incentives in healthcare, right? This has been a constantly moving and evolving area, and over time, um, you know, the the regs start to get better and they start to understand where they work, you know, and they don't work. I think that was no more true with the kind of EMR and e-prescribing incentives. So, um, I think your example is a great one, Fred. They're going to be services that are really, really valuable in terms of reducing cost that may not cost that much. Um, and so I think that there's, um, I think what you're going to end up getting to is ultimately, hey, here's just a total dollar value per year. You know, have at it and, and do it the way you want to do it. Fantastic. I mean, we could obviously go on with this topic for a long time, <laughs> but I believe we're hitting up on that half hour mark. So thank you so much for being on the show this week at Top Health Week. And it's been a pleasure again, Michael. Thanks very much, Fred, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. And that will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I do want to thank our special guest, Michael Dermer, for his time and insights today. Uh, do yourself a favor. Follow Michael on Twitter via at Michael G. Dermer, D-E-R-M-E-R. And check out Well Talk on the web at www.welltalk.com. And follow them on Twitter at Well Talk as well. So until we meet again... For Fred Goldstein, for Michael Dermer, this is Greg Masters saying bye now.